on the dock of that lake with my fishing pole, the fishing gear, with the dark tannic water and the water lilies and the shorebirds and the sunsets and the absolute quiet. I believe that it was those hours of what turned out to be meditation that helped me settle into myself. It still took many decades of searching and work before I could really consciously understand all this. But I think I just needed to get off by myself and sit there in nature. And that is how I believe I began my journey into self-awareness. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am delighted to welcome Bill Benda to the My Fourth Act podcast. Bill is a seasoned emergency physician, a family doctor, integrative physician. His life has been spent for a time in California's magical Big Sur region, where he served as a physician at the Big Sur Health Center. In recent years, Bill had returned to his home state of Florida, where he has served as an emergency physician in West Palm Beach, as well as an associate professor of clinical medical bioscience at Florida Atlantic University. Throughout his life, Bill has been has had a keen passion for integrative medicine and naturopathic healing. At the age of 68, Bill lives a charmed life just off of a beautiful beach in South Florida, and he's actively contemplating his next act. So welcome, Bill. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so glad to speak with you, and I just, just need to say that a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of visiting you at the place where you live, which is a truly, truly enchanted place, like a block from the beach, a little touch of so whimsical older Florida that's rapidly disappearing. And you've had a, a very intriguing life that got you there. Now, when you were a young boy or teenager, did you want to be a doctor? Was that in your consciousness? Who, who did you want to be? Great question. Because of my family dynamics and how I was brought up and my environment, I really didn't think much about my future. I didn't think about what I wanted to be. I was busy intuitively and unconsciously trying to find out who I was. Uh, there wasn't a lot of support around me for my own identity. And so I ended up doing many things unconsciously that would bring me closer to understanding who I was. And I suppose intuitively, I knew that it, it wasn't much of a point in wondering what I was going to be until I found out who I was first. So I could work off of that construct. But I really didn't think about my career until probably high school when it was time to graduate and go to college. How did you go about figuring out who you were as, as a kid or teenager? You just gave us this wonderful language, but how did you do that? Well, as with most techniques, 
of trying to get in touch with yourself. It involved a sort of a meditation. Now, I was a young lost kid back then. I had no idea what I was doing, but I would spend hours upon hours upon hours. We had a, a lake across the street on the dock of that lake with my fishing pole, the fishing gear, with the dark tannic water and the water lilies and the shorebirds and the sunsets and the absolute quiet. I believe that it was those hours of what turned out to be meditation that helped me settle into myself. I still took many decades of searching and work before I could really consciously understand all this. But I think I just needed to get off by myself and sit there in nature. And that is how I believe I began my journey into self-awareness. Now, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm envisioning uh, this very idyllic childhood and connection to nature, which to most people also means a connection to the God or the divine. What I was also thinking about is I grew up in foreign countries around the same years that you did, but there was no television there. You also grew up in the golden age of American television, which was burgeoning at the time. What were you doing sitting at a lake and not watching TV at night? What's wrong with you? Well, first of all, it was idyllic in my connection to nature. The uh, social environment around me was not quite so idyllic. But this is back in the 50s, and yeah. we had three television networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and maybe PBS from Miami, if you could get it on channel two with your rabbit ears. And that was it. Uh, the TV shut off at about 10 or 11 with the pattern sign on and came back on at probably seven in the morning. There was no cable. Uh, the shows were 1950 shows based on idyllic family life and comedies, Westerns, army shows, which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed playing army. So there wasn't a lot of educational stimulation or material that would actually change my thinking in those programs. Plus, I just I I haven't owned a TV since I left my family home at age 16. Something about it I don't like. I don't like the constant stimulation. I don't trust it. Mm -hmm. It's I feel that it's takes away from our capability of looking inward and figuring things out for ourselves and developing our intuition and our instinct if we're always being constantly told yeah. what to do, what to think, what to buy. And I knew if I watched it, I would get hooked up in that drug as well. So uh, so I stayed away from it. Uh, I salute you for that fortitude. How did you decide that you did want to be a doctor? which in, in my mind requires lots of dedication, lots of hard work. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I was blessed with a good brain. Uh, and I was also kind of a nerdy, overweight kid as uh, when I was young. So I did very well in elementary school, junior high school, and high school, the top of my class. And back then in high school, we had these things called guidance counselors. And my guidance counselor, who was a wonderful woman, and my mother, got together and decided I was going to be a doctor and not knowing any better or any different or having any other viewpoint, I decided to go along with it. So I applied to Duke University and was accepted for a four-year undergraduate program. And at that time, since I was going to be a doctor, I took all the pre-med courses. 
that being said, these were the early 70s, 71 to 74, and it was the height of the hippie culture, which I partook of. Really had an appreciation for some of the purity of thought that was behind it and some of the rejection of the capitalistic culture that was behind it, even though it was rife with immaturity and arrogance and foolishness, there was a certain purity of thought and intention behind it that I was drawn to. And I got to be average in college, but it wasn't good enough to apply to medical school. So I took another five, six years off, came back to my hometown right here. I first became a lifeguard on the beach, and then our local fire department started the paramedic program, which was a very unusual thing in those days. There were only several in the country. And so I applied for and became a paramedic firefighter, which introduced me to the field of emergency medicine and actually the field of medicine itself. And that has influenced the rest of my career. Now, I'll just add to the end of that, that after five or six years with the fire department, I realized this is dead end for me. So I went back and studied. We took the med boards, reapplied to med school, and was accepted at the University of Miami. Yeah. And that's how I ended up actually becoming a doctor. As you're speaking, you know, and you're mentioning the sojourn you had before you went to med school, the activities you engaged in, again, I hear, I see Baywatch television show, which you probably don't know, or I, I see the firefighting TV shows. I, these are heroic professions, even though reality may be very different. And if I'm going to make a little leap, I'm struck by the fact that you've spent a bunch of time doing emergency medicine, which is, again, even though you don't watch TV, people see that's what the TV shows do. Like That's the sexy part of being a doctor and the heroic part, right? Yeah. There's... Are any of those connected in your mind at all? they're not reality i mean there is small doses of heroism heroism is when you do something that you don't want to do because it's the right thing to do so if i walk into a cardiac arrest in the emergency room and i give all the appropriate medications and run it the right way and the person comes back and walks out of the hospital two weeks later that's not heroic i did my job when i was a firefighter and i walked into a burning building that was sort of heroic, but not really because that's what I signed up for. I've heard about these shows, ER and Baywatch, and <laughs> fire shows. And no, you don't have sex in the closets and everyone's not beautiful. And it's not nonstop in you know, critical situations. You know, back in the 70s, there was a show called Emergency, which was the first show about paramedics. That was much more accurate than shows today. No, it's not that way. Well, since you've had a, a long and, and really impressive journey in, in medicine, if you, if you had to give us a snapshot of the first, maybe the first, the first job you had as a physician, where was that? What were you doing there? And did you like it? Did you not like it? What was that like to finally be a doctor somewhere? Well, the first job I had was after my residency at Harbor UCLA in Los Angeles. I stayed on the faculty of that academic program for a few years as director of emergency medicine services. And that's teaching and having a job, but it was sort of like the training. So I'm not going to count that. Yeah. Let me take your question and turn it a little bit and say, what is the first really important job that I had? I've worked in a lot of jobs. Mm -hmm. I just went through the motions did the right thing. And that was that. 
Well, I think the first, actually, I'll go back to my training. I think that during my residence, I trained in a county hospital. I've worked in several county hospitals since. In California, a county hospital is one where you have all the indigents, poor mental health, yeah. addicted, alcoholic people, along with all of the other clientele. And that exposed me to the undercurrent of American society. Yeah. And that was a huge, important education for me. My mother, God bless her, taught us to be colorblind. Yeah. We didn't grow up in a household with any bias or prejudice whatsoever. So I got to see all of these people in all of these situations from a more clean perspective. And I got a feeling of what the social construct of this country and the world really is about. And it's not about corporations and it's not about television shows. A common humanity, a common connection of empathy and pain and joy that connects us all that unfortunately I think we lose track of in our jobs. But when you're in a county hospital and you are figuring out what to do with the situations these people bring you, then you start to really appreciate what other people go through. So I think that was my first real job as far as growing as a physician. Um, so I hope that answers that question. Well, where, where my thoughts went, and I don't want to label it, is that did that experience help you become a more empathetic human being because you met oh. people whose lives were different from yours and you had a chance to be a helper, right? I was born and cursed to be a healer, a helper, whatever it is. It's, yeah. um, in my fifth act, there's no way I'm going to be somewhere where I'm not going to be providing a service. It's just, it's, it's ingrained in me in particular. I think it's ingrained in all of us. But that definitely taught me how to connect with people, but it also taught me how privileged I was just to be yeah. blue collar yeah. and what people actually have to go through. And if I was in their position, I would probably do the same thing they did to bring them to my emergency room. It's, um, I think those of us who work in a field where we work with the underserved and the outcast learn that we learn to not judge. Yeah. It, it just knocks the judgment right out of us. I might, I judge rich people and corporations and politics <laughs> all the time, but I don't really judge people who are just trying to make it in the world. You, you judge the oppressors, but not the oppressed. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. There are so many doors we could walk through in the conversation right now. And I'm gonna, the one thing that strikes me about just what I know about your story is you, um, we were connected through a mutual acquaintance who is out in, in the Big Sur area. You lived in Monterey in the Big Sur area for a while. In my mind, that's this uh, sexy, primal, beautiful part of California. It's seductive. And then giving you all the cliches, how did you end up in that part of California? And uh, why did you hang out there for as long as you did? Well, this relates to my early childhood because as I went through all my training in Los Angeles, medical training, as you mentioned, is, is rigorous. Yeah. And it, it takes one away from being with oneself. 
because you're always focusing on protocols and paradigms and diseases and treatments. And there's not really a time to stop and just feel yourself. So all of the difficulties I felt during my early years came bubbling to a head at the end of my training. And I just didn't know what to do. I was being very depressed. So I heard of this place called the Esalen Institute up in Big Sur, and I decided to go take a week-long workshop there. And that is where I met Ellen, our mutual friend. Um, actually had a relationship with her for a couple of years and decided that L.A. was not the place for me and I had to go somewhere. And Big Sur was as healing a place as I could possibly find. And in some respects, that was true. So Big Sur is a fascinating place. It's I think it's feminine. I think it's a woman energy there. But either Big Sur takes you in and nurtures you or boots you out immediately. Some people go there and their house burns down and the road falls in and their car gets stolen and they lose their job. They're not supposed to be there. I had the great fortune of showing up there and spending probably almost 15 years there and being taken care of um, by the environment. So I, I guess I went there for the right purpose. And I lived on a mountain with my Labrador retriever and not really any neighbors. It's an hour to town. Uh, there's the Big Sur community around, but that's 2,000 people max in the hills. And the Esalen Institute was a few miles south down the road. And I became their unofficial physician, which gave me unfettered access to the place. So I spent a lot of years at Esalen Institute as part of the community, taking workshops, listening to leaders, listening to lectures, soaking in the baths, eating the food, doing a few foolish things. But that's how I ended up there. And I know your next question is probably going to be, so why did you leave? No, it's not. I, I want to hang out <laughs> in Esalen a okay, little well, more. Let's I, hang on there. We'll hang on there. I, for, uh, for the listener who, who has not heard of Esalen Institute, it's a, really a, a seminal place of in, in the history, I think, of American personal growth, development, where Eastern and Western thought met each other. and. Again, for a while in the 60s, it was to definitely attract a lot of celebrities. You were earlier joking about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it was it had a little bit of that wild reputation as well in the middle of a, a place of deep personal exploration. And the other thing is, if anybody was to Google just some photos of Esalen, the, the nature and the beauty is just jaw-dropping there. So you hung out in that community for a while. You, you learned about yourself. You were embraced. You also had a formal role as your informal role as a physician. If you just went back and thought of a moment or two that you go, these moments really stand out for me. Um, when I think of these moments, I go, wow, how blessed was I to be there? Like what moments come to mind? Well, the most frequent moment was sitting in the mineral baths, which naturally come out of the mountain and watching the sunset over the Big Sur coast. And, uh, or at night, every night when there's no fog, you have the entire Milky Way at your disposal mm. um, every single night. So just those moments in nature absolutely made me feel gratitude for where I was. There were also several people I met, some workshop leaders, some community members who embodied 
what I was looking for, who were very wise and very talented. And there were times when I was in their presence or taking a workshop from them that I realized how fortunate I was. Whenever I, yes, I realized the entire time I lived there how fortunate I was to be there. I have great gratitude for Big Sur as, as an entity. Actually, the Esalen Institute was considered holy ground by the Esalen Indians, for whom it is named. It's been a holy place in Native American culture for a long, long time. Yeah. I, I so appreciate your use of the word holy, holy ground. And, and I think that there's so many different meanings we can all attribute to that word and what it is. Uh, where my mind was going. Uh, you alluded earlier about how some jobs you had where you just went through the motions and some you did not, right? And as a physician, emergency physician, wherever you are, is it possible to have similar holy experiences through the work that you do or we do? Is that possible? Yes. Yes. And... This took some time to develop because during my early training years and my early years out in the world working, it was all about the excitement and the trauma and the, you know, the heart attacks and the things that you could jump in and get your hands into and do some, make some major interventions. But then I began to learn as all that became old, because it all becomes old. Yeah. You're told at that point when you're into it, Oh, there'll come a time when you really don't want to do this. You go, oh, never. I love this stuff. I'll do it forever. No, it becomes old. And when it becomes old and it's blasting light dims down, then you can see the more subtle light of what else you've been doing. And there are two things that I have been known for. I, uh, for the last few years, I've been teaching residents in emergency medicine. And the two things I am known for is the first, I can walk into a room, make an instant connection with whoever it is. Yeah. And they trust me immediately. And the second, well, there's three. The second is I know how to be there when they die. Mm -hmm. And the third is I know how to tell the family that somebody is going to die or they have died, whether it be an old person or a child or, or anything. So those three things I learned through all experiences I've had, including at Esalen, and those are the things I carry with me that I wish to continue and I'm actually proud of. Whereas the sewing the lacerations and setting the broken bones and bringing the dead back to life and it's just, I don't want to do it anymore. I'll do it, but it's just, it doesn't do it for me. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Now I want to go to the question that you thought I was going to ask you five minutes ago. But you are in this stunningly beautiful place in nature. You, you gave us a snapshot of where you live. You were accepted and embraced by a community that lived on holy ground. There were great teachers there. And at some point, you, you left. Why? 
I'm curious. Well, throughout my life, there have been times, usually seven to 10 years apart, when this voice comes into me and says, you need to do this. And I have always obeyed that voice. I've always attached faulty reasoning and ambitions to that voice, but I've always <laughs> the voice. Yeah. And there came a time when I just knew it was time to, to move back here to South Florida, where I said I'd never return because of the, of the population and the building and everything. And I made that decision. And interestingly enough, that's when there was this huge basin fire in Big Sur and Monterey County and the Institute closed for a few months. Um, because of the financial hit they took, the people who ran the Institute decided to shift from sort of a community-based, you know, low-key communal learning situation into a more commercially viable. Yeah. They upgraded all the buildings. They raised all the rates on their workshops and such. They, they wanted to attract a higher social strata of, of clientele which is not something I was interested in. And I, I knew I would not have, well, I left before I knew this, but now I know I would not have fit there anymore. I think life, I've been blessed with timing. I don't know why I didn't develop it, but somehow my, my sense of timing has always been spot on as far as when it's time to leave. And so I left and I came back here. I'm not sure why I missed the warm Atlantic ocean Yes. I did not like the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I so like, understand oh, that. Yes. I, I missed this because I grew up in it. And so I wanted to have it back in, in the last part of my life. And so I just packed up, grabbed my dog, and we came back and started another chapter. Did you immediately move back to so the area where you and I met a few weeks ago, which is close to the beach and a an almost old primal beach lifestyle that is also vanishing in Florida. Did you step back into that? As a matter of fact, if I look out the window, I see the little cottage where I lived in the 1970s, uh -huh. Black Labrador Retriever, when all the roads were dirt roads. So I actually moved back to the neighborhood I left. But yeah, I, I stepped right back into South Florida. It's changed a lot. Yeah. So that I'm going to just tell a little story as an analogy and then I want to go back to you. Like I, I spent a year in the early nineties in, in a remote island, the Caribbean Tobago it was a very magical time for me. And when I was done, I felt like I was done. I had no, no desire to go back. 20 years later through a friend of mine who was a flight attendant, he said he had a flight to Port of Spain. Hey, come, you have a free ticket. Let's go back to Tobago and check it out. And what I realized is, for me, I couldn't really go back. There was a reason why I had not wanted to go back. That experience has stood us. And 20 years later, the place I had thought was charming looked shabby. And I, don't, I didn't think it had gotten shabby or my perception had changed. So what was it like to step back into literally the, the neighborhood where you had grown up many years later? What was that like for you? This is the neighborhood where I spent my time as a paramedic and lifeguard. I had grown up a bit west of here. Okay. It was relatively unchanged. And even a few people that I knew from then were still here. So it was it was wonderful in that respect and that I landed in a community like I had had in Big Sur. So 
there's always the question, can you ever go home? Yeah. And this is my geographic home, but what I've discovered in my life is you can go home. You can go home several times in different places because home is where you feel you belong. So I, I belonged in Los Angeles for my training. Mm-hmm. I belonged in Tucson for my integrative medicine training. I belonged in Big Sur for what it gave me. And uh, I belonged here when I got back. I'm starting to have thoughts about that. Uh, do I still belong here or not? I'm not sure. That's, that's yet to be seen. But for me, home is where I feel I'm supposed to be, mm-hmm. despite the geography. So. And what I'm thinking of as you're speaking, though, is I think similarly to you, I have a good sense of timing. So part of it is knowing when to move on and maybe a different home is calling us, right? And you seem to have that, which is mm-hmm. uh, many people don't have that. It's too frightening to think of leaving what you have now yeah, because it's comfortable and maybe you even like it. But you hear that voice, you feel that yearning. It's time to go somewhere else. You go, whoa, I don't want to. That's... I don't want to lose. I don't want to lose this because you have to, as I say, close the door to open another one. So you have to take that risk, that step. Would you talk a little bit about your interest, how your interest in uh, integrative medicine grew? You've, you've been very involved in the community. You were an associate editor of Integrative Medicine Journal. You were an associate editor of another journal that's related. You served on some boards. So that that is a community that you you made choices to play there. So would you talk yeah. about why this matters to you or has mattered? It was that pesky voice again. So there I am working in the Big Sur Health Center. And back when I first was a doctor, it was we were autonomous. We had control over what we needed to do. No one really got, was over us. And then, as you may remember, in the 1980s, our technology advanced, which was by definition expensive. And therefore, the insurance companies and the government through Medicare started worrying about the cost of healthcare. Right. And that's when corporate America stepped in and said, hey, we've been doing this for a long time. We know how to do it. And just let us do it. And you can keep your autonomy and you can keep the doctor you want and you still make your money. We'll just take care of the business part. And we knew that was a bad idea. We knew that was a bad idea, but we did it anyway. And as the years have gone by, uh, corporate medicine has taken over our practice, no matter what we do. I have a graph from the Department of Bureau of Statistics or something of the U.S. government. The number of physicians between 1970 and today has grown by 100%. And the number of administrative people in healthcare has grown by 3,000%. Yeah. Everything feeds that 3,000%, and we get the trickle-down leftovers, and it's just not that much fun anymore to have to meet metrics and follow protocols and algorithms and get always look over your shoulder. Hopefully, the younger people training now are just used to it, so it's not going to bother them much. But it's become unbearable for many of us. And so back in the year 1998, I was starting to feel this. And a friend of mine I had trained in emergency medicine with, um, I was talking to him and he says, well, now I just, I'm going to enter this new fellowship in Tucson at the University of Arizona under this guy, Andrew Weil. 
called the program in integrative medicine, and it combines conventional medicine and alternative medicine. And that's when that light went off and that voice popped up immediately and said, okay, you have to go do this. And it was a struggle for me to, to get there and do the program, but I did go there and do the program. It was a two-year residential fellowship where we were exposed to homeopathy and botanical medicine, chiropractic, uh, massage therapy, uh, various other conventional therapies. And that's when I learned that there was a different way to look at the field of taking care of another person. I'd always known it was there, but since all my training had been kind of conventional techniques, that's what I thought it was. I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't really understood what else there was to do. So I spent two years there in the fellowship. I stayed two more years. I did research in the effects of physical therapy on horseback with children with uh, cerebral palsy and published that, did some political work, and then spent the next 10 to 15 years not practicing this kind of medicine because, frankly, it bores me to death. But I was fascinated by how it was affecting American culture, so I got involved journalistically, uh, academically, politically. I got a good feel for what this was all about and where it was going, which is another whole story. I know you've been, in recent years, working as an emergency physician in West Palm Beach. And what I'm thinking is you spent two years with Andrew Weil. You learned a lot of integrative approaches. Are you able to put any of that into practice in that environment? Or are those really separate worlds that don't actually come together, even though it would be wonderful if they did? Perfect. You just delineated why I left. Because the answer to your question is no. I mean... There are clinics and specialties where you can do that. Yeah. Cancer, for one, really makes a lot of good use of that. Family practice can make good use of it. All sorts of things can make good use of it. Not emergency medicine simply by the fact that we, our patients and our the problems we have, you've got a few minutes to deal with it, fix it, admit them or send them home. We don't have the capability or time to do it. However, I knew intuitively when I entered it, integrative medicine, that the key to having this actually work in this country was to find a way to take the conventional system, which kind of rejected alternative things, and the alternative system, which frankly rejected conventional medicine right. just as vehemently, and you got to bring them together. And since those of us in the fellowship were MDs, that MDs and DOs got into the, into the program, it was kind of our job to do that. So many of the graduates went off and, and joined a family medicine residency somewhere and, and brought in that teaching and started to do integrative medicine within academic centers or even, even private centers. But as I said, I don't have any interest in practicing that, so I tried to do it politically. So I joined a number of boards of the unconventional therapies, specifically naturopathic medicine, and tried for quite a few years to convince these two sides that the only way through was to actually accept each other, learn about each other, and work together. And I uh, I failed. They're still way too far apart. Uh, so at that point, since I couldn't make a living doing what I was doing, I was doing it for the love of it, I decided, okay, it's time to shift back into taking care of myself and finding whatever the next chapter was. So I left all the conference speaking and the 
lecturing and the writing, for the most part, the writing. And I went back to the practice of emergency medicine. Integrative medicine to me is just a no-brainer, you know, and I have a long history of dealing with my own medical issues, and I have had every kind of practitioner take care of me, for which I'm very grateful on every side of the professional spectrum. So I have a great appreciation for what it is. But when you look to the future, are you hopeful about integrative medicine? Are you cynical and jaded? How do you see the future? Yes, I am all of those hopeful. Our current system has to fail. It has to die. It has to crash and burn. No. With, with or without integrative medicine right. in the sidelines, it's, it, it can't continue like this. It just can't. No. Um, if that happens and there's enough wisdom on the integrative side to come in and help rebuild, yeah, I have, I have great hope. Am I cynical and jaded? Yeah. And I mean, 45 years in emergency medicine will make anyone jaded as to, as to life. But um, there's hope. We'll see what happens. So when you look at your own life right now, where you are, again, and I have had the privilege of visiting you at your beach pad. So I know you, you live a life that I think has all, it's full of like modern amenities, but it has an old, rustic, olden time charm. You're close to the beach. It's a life that many people would envy. And at the same time, I have a sense that there are the things you want to explore, that you're open to other things that are connected to your desire to be a helper, which you explained. Do you have any hunches of what other things you might wish to explore? Not professionally at this point. I realize at this stage of my life, I am probably at least two-thirds to three-quarters through. And these last 20 years or so, 25 years, need to be for me mm -hmm. to finish up whatever um, journey I started for myself. I One thing that weighs on my mind these days is our political situation, and I have certain fears about what may happen after the next two election cycles. Mm -hmm. And being a good emergency physician, we always troubleshoot what's going on and come up with different options. Yes. And so I want a plan B in case I honestly don't want to be here anymore. And that would involve being uh, probably some other country, territory, island or something. Whether it would be a full-time move, or it would be just another option waiting for me. I don't know. I'm exploring that right now. But something tells me that I need to get back to a place that's much more low-key on the ocean in a place that perhaps I can, to be honest, escape to if necessary. And it's a community. And I can provide a service. And in places like this, they usually don't have a doctor. So I could provide a service as well. And I think I may have found a real potential place. I think since I talked to you, uh, it's not Uruguay. Uh, that's what we were talking about back then. It's much, much closer. But I think I may have found a, a, poss a possibility. So... I'm starting to feel excited again about about the next year or two. 
But I think we have to wait and see what happens over the next two to five years. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I don't see how any of us can make any plans or know how we're going to be or feel or want to do until we can get through this crisis that we are going through. That's beyond my comprehension. I still don't get it. I still don't get why this is happening. Uh, or I don't get it. So I think we'll come to some sort of a resolution in the next few years, not many, uh, but I have no clue what it will be. It could go either way. I trust that your sense of timing will stay intact. But the other thing that really struck me as you were describing what a next place that that would both feed your soul, but also give you a sense of, I'm going to use the word peace, if you could argue with me, peace or calm mm -hmm. or home in the middle of a storm, as you described it. To me, it sounded like it's a, it's another version of Esalen, but in a different time, in a different place. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to look like Esalen, but it has some of the elements that you described as you were describing that experience. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Yes, absolutely. It's another version of that of Lake Ida, where I sat as a child and fished for untold hours at a time. Um, it is, and it'll be home. Yeah. yeah, be home because it's where I feel at home. But I'm tired, and today's issues really need to be addressed primarily by younger, more energetic people with who still hold a lot of the passion of, of the youth. Yeah. And I have faith in them. I know they're out there. But there does come a time where people become elders, and in prior cultures, they were revered and honored and not shipped out to some nursing home. But um, I'm entering that phase. I, I don't have the physical, mental, or emotional energy anymore to enter a major battle. Yeah. I don't. Well, because part of your recent stage of work has been you've been in an emergency, in an emergency room, but you've also been teaching, leading, supporting residents, right? So you have mm -hmm. been in an almost classic elder role which is a, a mentor to the next generation and that's true do you, and do you have a sense that your wisdom experience longevity was was respected and oh in my god yes um, so it was a brand new program i started it when it was brand new so we'd taken six residents a year for three years that's 18 at a time and I didn't have all of the recent scientific knowledge that the younger faculty had. They were in their mm -hmm. 30s and 40s. But I did bring my experience and my what I've learned about myself. And I was the most beloved faculty there. I'll just go ahead and say it. I've got awards they give at the end of the year every year. And they just knew they were getting something from me about life. Even though a lot of what I said contradicted what the academic and corporate world were telling them. But they just knew it was something they needed, they were hungry for. So now was I respected and adored by the administrative people? Not a bit. Not a bit. I actually had to leave just this past June because it was just getting too difficult to be there. Um, but the students and residents, it was wonderful. I missed them terribly. 
they still come by here and they ride their bikes buying stuff by for a beer. But um, absolutely, the youth of our country, especially the ones like these who are intelligent and have enough moral compass to go into a field where they can help people, they are hungry for the old philosophies. They are hungry for the old stories. They are hungry for things that have been taught throughout the generations and ages. Um, because it's intrinsically in their genetic makeup, they know this is what they need to thrive and to survive. So yeah, it was a great experience teaching them. We, it was wonderful. I will treasure it always. So last question. When you talked about your childhood and I saw the lake and I, I heard as you spoke about this, a young man who, no, whether you were totally conscious or you were a seeker for, for deeper things, for meaning, for all of those things and from a young age. From your current vantage point, you are 68, you have a lot more stuff ahead of you. What have you learned about the meaning of life or uh, the mysteries of life? Well, keep in mind during the decades, I was not self-aware that I was on a search. I spent a lot of my life suffering and depression. Mm -hmm. um, what have I learned about life? Well, the most important thing I've learned is that I belong here. I deserve to be here. That it doesn't really matter what somebody else thinks of me. That it is essential to hang on to one's sense of moral compass and, and right from wrong and to choose to do the right thing despite the consequences. I have learned that there is some underlying entity, deity, energy, force, whatever. I'm, I'm of the many paths one mountain philosophy of spirituality you know, everyone's pretty much trying to find the top of that mountain whether they're muslim jew christian whatever you know atheists agnostic i think they're still trying to find the top of that mountain they just they reject existing religions right. and i can see why because existing religions can be bad sometimes do bad things but everyone's somewhere inside seeking that. Now, whether it's so smothered by, by their environment and the circumstances that it doesn't pop out or whether it's part of their whole reason for existence, I've learned that, I've learned that we are here to serve, serve, to take care of others. I have, honestly, I'm not a practicing Christian. I, I did go to Lutheran school for eight years, but um, Jesus had it down. I forget the Old Testament, but Jesus had it down. That is why we are on the planet. The Sermon on the Mount. Everything that, for God bless them, a lot of the Christian faiths totally don't follow. But we are here to forgive. We are here to take care of each other, to care of the least of us take care of the children. We are here to offer ourselves in service, and only through that do we end up finding who we are as a person. Thank you so much for the gift of this conversation, Bill. It was a complete pleasure. Take care. Well, I hope it, I hope it resonates with somebody out there listening. I haven't really done anything like some people do in their lives. That's, uh, that's enormous and spectacular and, and a benefit for mankind. 
But I've helped a lot of people. I extrapolated once how many patients I've had. I think it's about 90,000. So I know I've made a difference in a lot of those lives. And if there's God bless Christianity of heaven, I think, I think I've got to take it in. So it's been a pleasure seeing you again and talking to you again. And, and thank you for delving into my personal history because it's done a lot for me just to review it and think about it again. So thanks to, thanks to you as well. It was my pleasure. Bye for now. Take care. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.